On this uh, Communion Sunday, let's open God's Word. We are continuing through 2 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 11. 2 Corinthians in chapter 11. We'll look at the first six verses. As you're opening to that, let me welcome those who might be watching online or watching later in our recorded uh, sermon. God's Word uh, has all that we need for life and godliness, and so we appreciate everyone sitting under God's word as it's preached and taught, but we welcome anyone from home to be with God's people. Join us for worship any Sunday. Let me read to you from the ESV translation of God's holy word as as Paul kind of jumps into the fray in this contention with some of the people he's writing to back in the city of Corinth. We'll get back to the context in a minute. But uh, you'll hear something very unusual from the Apostle Paul as he uh, enters into this uh, uh, corrective dialogue. Verse 1 of chapter 11. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, You put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Amen. It's not only a communion Sunday here at Clifton Park Community Church, but it happens to be Mother's Day in America, so happy Mother's Day, one and all. Uh, Motherhood is something wonderful. It is to be celebrated, not just one day a week, uh, but regularly. I've been thinking a lot about Mother's Day because I'm now a grandfather, and I see my granddaughter in the arms of her mother. And uh, it sure takes one back, doesn't it? Perhaps the most intimate relationship is that of a child with his mother. And uh, that changes a little bit through the years. And it, it really changes when you get married and the two become one flesh. Uh, so there's a wonderful intimacy there if that's God's provision for you. We're not going to speak per se about mothers, but let me follow up on that uh, marriage idea because it will lead to our text, intimacy of relationship. It's uh, also today, uh, if you didn't know, is the birthday of our 33rd president. Anybody know our 33rd president? Come on, man, number 33. I'm not calling out anybody, but uh, Harry Truman. Harry Truman. He was born in 1884. And in 1956, his only daughter, Mary Margaret Truman, was married. 
And I've been, I was thinking about that, not just because it's Truman's birthday, but uh, getting married and a fellow having to ask the President of the United States for the hand of his daughter in marriage. Wow. Um, Harry Truman, the buck stops there. Uh, that would be a challenge, and I'm sure your only daughter, I can only imagine Harry Truman, who had stood up to America's enemies in World War II and brought about the peace through very hard decisions. He's there as a fellow named Albert Clifton Daniel Jr. approached, and he was a managing editor of the New York Times, and my guess is that was probably not a position kindly related to the president. Anyways, to ask for someone's hand in marriage. And as a father would be, to be circumspect and demanding about those arrangements. It's interesting here that Paul begins to speak as he's pushing back on some false teachers in Corinth. He takes this metaphor of marriage and he talks to the Corinthians, the place where he started the Christian church in Corinth, and he talks to them as his father. And he says, I took you and betrothed you, as it were, to Christ. Very unusual metaphor, and I hope we can gather around it because Paul is showing the intensity of his feelings. He uses this phrase, jealousy, that the church in Corinth would not fall in love with other Jesuses or other Gospels, but would stay pure and devoted to their betrothed. That's the point here. And Paul's trying to shake them and wake them to say, look, these are the dangers, and I'm going to tell you about them because I don't want you to marry anyone else. You are intended for the Lord Jesus who opened your eyes and opened your heart and gave you a hope of heaven. Salvation issues at stake here, Paul is writing. And he says, this is foolish that I should have to go toe-to-toe with these false teachers, these super-duper apostles. Who are they? And later on in the chapter and next Sunday or the following Sunday, we'll focus more on them. But that's Paul's uncomfortable way. I I shouldn't have to duke it out with these guys. I'm an apostle myself. There are no super-duper apostles. But Paul shows his uh, divine-like intense love and care for them because their fidelity or their infidelity is at stake. Plain and simple. Our first heading this morning is to speak about this divine jealousy this divine jealousy that Paul brings up in verse 2. He, he tells them plainly, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. He's engaged. He's concerned. These adversaries had, had come in and stirred up the Corinthians and, and played with their preferences for articulate orators whose eloquence could sway the crowd. It's interesting how powerful eloquence is. I was reading in my devotional life in the book of Acts and Paul had come to Lystra and because of what they'd said and done, people worshiped them as gods and they say, no, no, no. And then it seems like within days, someone else comes in, turns the crowds against Paul and they want to stone him. The power of words. Paul had brought them the truth, but someone else came in and used words. They didn't do any miracles. They used words and turned the crowd. Paul is engaging these false teachers back in Corinth who were presenting other gospels and other priorities for the local church. 
We know that Corinth had struggled with a, a party spirit, several divisions and in, in, in distinct allegiances. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 4, Paul was even um, uh, pushing back on them when he said this, um, we are fools for Christ's sake. And I think he's saying that maybe with air quotes. You call us fools, we'll be fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ? He's being sarcastic. He says, we are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, we in disrepute. Paul is willing to be seen as foolish. He will not disengage. He will not abandon the truth, but he will defend it. And so he does. And this church had uh, lots of other named leaders. Apollos was probably the lead, most eloquent speaker. He's a good man. But it created this uh, tension in these uh, competing uh, factions. And into that mix came some outsiders. We can call them intruders if you want. Those super apostles. They're neither super nor apostolic. So maybe calling them intruders, interlopers. Come up with some other good words for them along the way. So Paul needed to engage. And he brings up the concept here in chapter 11 of divine jealousy. I I thought jealousy was a bad thing. Isn't jealousy a bad thing? I, you know, do I need to take the guys aside and remind us that normally jealousy is a bad thing in our human experience, in our imperfections? As Murray Harris uh, said, uh, not a well-known scholar, but Murray Harris, very faithful. He said, human jealousy is a vice, but to share divine jealousy is a virtue. We have to understand what, what that means, this divine jealousy. It has to do with strong passion. And it usually is concerning a relationship, right? Jealousy. In the Lord, what does that look like? George Guthrie said, in biblical literature, as well as the broader literatures of the Greco-Roman world, the world could also speak very positively of this term, jealous. It would speak positively of intense desires or dedication or of being deeply interested in someone and seeking their favor. In the ancient world, it had as much a positive connotation as a negative. I think in our world, it's mostly negative. But it does show up in the Bible. And it shows up in the Bible in a positive way at times. Proverbs 23, verse 17 says, Let not your heart envy, the same term about being jealous, envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Don't envy them, but continue in this relationship with the Lord. Proverbs 24, verse 1 says, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Do you know our God says he's a jealous God? Let me point you to the reference. If you're a note taker or a Bible student, you might want to take note. Uh, When the Ten Commandments were given back in Exodus chapter 20, that's when they're given. They are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, right? The second giving of the law. But in Exodus chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments. That's an address you should know. And I hope you read through the Ten Commandments regularly. They're given by the God who took his people out of captivity In the midst of giving the second commandment, so Exodus 20, about verse 5, he says this. You shall not, in the second commandment about graven images, 
Uh, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love, hesed, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He grounds the commandment about true and biblical worship with that phrase, I am a jealous God. Wow. God does not want the love and affection of his people going to someone else. It belongs to him. He is the one who has loved us so. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. It should greatly humble us and always anchor us to Christ. God says, I'm a jealous God. And not just here, but when they arrive in the promised land, you could look ahead, Exodus 34, verse 14. He reminds them, you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Oh oh boy. It's as if if God had an office, one of the names he'd put on the door is Jealous God. Enter at your own risk. God identifies and takes a name upon him of this attribute. He is passionate for his glory. He's passionate for his people. And he will not let them give his glory to another God who is no God. As they go into the promised land. Paul taps into that. Paul says, I feel that strongly for you. So he calls it a divine jealousy as he writes to these Corinthians. Boy, he hangs in there with them in this second letter. And he says, I betrothed you to one husband. He hasn't used the name Christ here, but we know who he's talking about. When you are converted, one way to think of it is that you are engaged and then joined to Christ. And and a new life begins. And you have union with him. You're adopted by the Father. All sorts of metaphors come in. There is perhaps no greater illustration of gospel intimacy than to understand the church as Christians to be the bride of Christ. We don't want to push that in personal dimensions or in any inappropriate way. It basically speaks of that oneness of unity and union spiritually. You know, in the Old Testament, we've already talked about God being a jealous God, but do you know that God was also a bridegroom in the Old Testament? The passage we read for the call to worship came from Hosea chapter 2. And in the Old Testament, that minor prophet and other places depict Israel as the bride and God as the bridegroom. Israel was not only God's son, but Israel was God's people, and he was jealous for them. And he was going to be betrothed to them. And Hosea 2, which we read earlier, explains that. And and points to this messianic period when the Messiah would come. And there would be talk of this union. What does it mean to be betrothed? And Paul's saying, uh, I betrothed you and I want to present you as a pure virgin of Christ. Well, they're already Christians. What is Paul talking about? Paul's talking about the, the consummation. 
when the union is at its culmination in heaven, when we are with our Savior and the things of this world have passed away and there's the celebration, there's the absence of sin and there's the absence of distance, we will see him face to face. Paul's talking about uh, between uh, being engaged and, and, as it were, the consummation of this spiritual union. And that follows the Old Testament picture. And I'm glad our modern translation uses this term betrothed because it triggers us to think, perhaps, in Old Testament terms. Here comes the brief history lesson. I'll keep it brief, but it's interesting. From Dr. Simon Kistemacher. In Oriental culture of that day, an engagement was equivalent to marriage without consummation. And in the background, as I share the rest of this information, you might be thinking of Mary, who was engaged, betrothed to Joseph. And he was going to put her away because she was with child. Background. Uh, It was equivalent to marriage. The betrothal period lasted for one year, during which the bride and the bridegroom prepared for the wedding. From the day of her betrothal, the woman was legally the wife of her future husband, but she remained a virgin until the wedding day. In addition, the engagement might not be broken. If this happened, it was considered a divorce. Only death might end an engagement, says Kistemacher. Unfaithfulness of either party was regarded as adultery and had to be disciplined accordingly. The bride had to remain a virgin to be presented to her husband. So Kistemacher says, Paul exerts himself to keep the church pure from doctrine contrary to the gospel as he strives to present them to Christ. What a beautiful picture. And you think uh, Harry S. Truman would be a tough father-in-law. How would you like to have the Apostle Paul working you over? Paul Paul is taking this, this position And again, it's allegorical, it's a metaphor, but he's taking this position because he cares. He's the one who brought them to Christ and he wants to see them prepared to belong to Christ in eternity. There's some huge implications for us in all of this. But let's also press on to our second heading and look at some of the dangers. What is it? Why why is Paul so anxious? Okay, Paul, they're believers, and Christ is in their future. What is Paul anxious about? Well, in verse 3, you can tell he's anxious because he says that, I am afraid. The apostle here sees what follows is very real. And this part is not the history lesson. This is the part where Christians today who hope to be joined to Christ at his return need to pay attention. This is for us as well. Paul shares the the first of his fears, and we would call it his fear of deception. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. He's, He's referencing the Garden of Eden. That historic account of Adam and Eve in the garden, God had made man and woman, he created them equally. He said, Adam first, then Eve gave them instructions, commands, and they broke those commands. And it did start with Eve listening to the serpent and and being deceived. R.K. R. Kent Hughes, who's such a picturesque preacher, listen to how he crafts this sentence to explain how Eve fell. He says, Eve fell by the serpent's encircling 
her soul with sequential coils of deception as he promised Eve things he could never deliver. It's not usually head on. The devil seldom pops up in a red suit with a pitchfork. You know, I think that's his reverse psychology to get us to laugh away his reality. The devil comes as an angel of light. Oh, let me bless you. Let me show you. This is how you should think. This is how you should believe. He's cunning. He's not a joke. So Paul is aware of that historical event and he uses it illustratively not to berate Eve, but to talk to the church as if to a bride and says, beware of deception. Because when Eve took into her mind the suspicions he raised, her simplicity was gone and her purity followed. Those are the phrases that come in verse 3. Uh, Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Wow. So the second danger is not just that you would be deceived, but that you would wander astray. Deception is followed by wandering. Before I leave deception, let me just remind you that the worst satanic attacks don't often come to your feelings, but to your mind. To give you a picture that's wrong about God, a picture about the Lord Jesus Christ, to cause you to think of sins as but trifles, and your duties to the Lord as suggestions. When we get the wrong thoughts, our feelings and behaviors will quickly roll astray. It's the deception, it's the mind, it's how we think. Are we girded about by truth? This wandering, uh, wandering from sincerity and purity. Obviously, that has uh, all sorts of bridal images. Paul says, I want you to be able to wear white on that day. I don't want you running after other lovers or paramours. These words, by the way, sincerity really just means simplicity. As one Greek scholar says, it rules out every trace of duplicity, simplicity, right? Simplicity. We know the scriptures. If you've read the scriptures, haven't you? God wants our hearts. He wants our wholeheartedness. He wants us to be single-hearted. Have you read that in the scriptures? Paul says, you've got to have this simplicity, this sincerity of heart and be exclusively devoted to one person. So that first term is also followed by purity. Both are significant. You need to have a single-heartedness for your Savior and Lord, and you have to have a purity, a measure of moral blamelessness. We don't have to be perfect. We can't be perfect. God does not set his love upon us once we get our act together. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's gospel glorious truth, isn't it? God doesn't abandon us as believers when we sin. If we're his, he will work in us and through us. 
and he will complete what he has begun. He will. And Paul's one of the methods, he does it through Paul's letter to the Corinthians and eventually to us to remind us that we have to strive in this direction. We have to be careful not to wander. Maybe we need to, to, to sing a, a, another version, come the, another verse, come thou fount of every blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. What Christian hasn't sung that to know the taste of that temptation. So the hymn writer gives us some help. The rest of the verse. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I want to have a sincerity of heart and a purity of heart. I want my love to Christ to be singular, to be solid, to be steadfast. Lord, make it so. A third danger is is really several grouped together. And it's very alarming because Paul's not just talking about our our devotion to Christ. He's talking about some producing and following an alternate Christ. Do we see what he goes on to say here in verse 4? For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, You put up with it. You're okay with that. Hello? He's just almost dumbfounded. And and a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel, that's alarming. Paul preached a historic gospel that could be and was verified by witnesses. That God sent his son. Jesus lived in accordance with the law. He was sinless. And he laid down his life. He died, he was buried, and he rose the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And after his resurrection, he appeared to the apostles. And he appeared to up to 500 brothers at one time. And he personally appeared to Paul. Oh, and people knew about it. Saul of Tarsus, nasty Saul, had become humble, compassionate Paul. An encounter with Jesus did that. And he says, you're you're pursuing a different Jesus? We we don't know the content of what was being taught at Corinth. Whether it was Judaizers who had come saying you've got to add Jewishness to be a real Christian. That was a big deal in Galatians. Here in Corinthians, some of the speculation is that it, it focused primarily on Jesus as the son of uh, David and the king of Israel and his moral help in a victorious living, maybe diminishing Christ's divinity. There are clues in and out of all these letters to these things. We don't need to to run down every possible option of the false Jesus they were teaching, but they were presenting a Jesus less than Paul presented, a different Jesus. That's not helpful. I appreciate a lot of books that try to call people back to who Jesus is, not put out an alternate Jesus. Oh, my Jesus would never do that. My Jesus would never do this. This Jesus, this spirit, and this gospel. 
I read a wonderful comment this week, and I think it's golden. When God's redeemed people embrace other spirits, different gospels, even a different Jesus, they are committing adultery. Actually, the golden comment is still to come, but that's, that's true. When we sin and, and, and are swayed in those directions, that's spiritual adultery. And you can think of the people of God at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses lingered on the mountain receiving the law. They said, uh, let, let's, let's make uh, our own God out of gold. And the, uh, a lot of us think they were creating just a pagan God, but no, they were trying to make Jehovah and it made it in the shape of a bull to give them visual help. We need strength. We're marginalized. Let's do this bull. And, and they were trying to add to the gospel. They were trying to add to the reality of who God was and how he worked. Today, what are the different gospels that threaten us? They're around. They're in bookstores. They're online. They're in blogs. They're in YouTube videos. Some of the low-hanging fruit, let me just point them out. There's been for a couple decades talk about the therapeutic gospel. And it's not that complicated. You hear someone say, I'm in therapy. That helps give you a clue that this gospel is about helping you be your best self. This is a gospel helping you reach your, your potential. You're not so bad. The therapeutic gospel, it downplays the serious effects of sin in the fall. It attempts uh, like self-help. Therapeutic, they're there. The gospel's here just to give you a hug. Or there's the moralistic gospel. This one has deep and long roots. The moralistic gospel. What does it focus on? It focuses on morals. Um, this is what you need to do to be a good person. Okay. And they take a lot of the do's and don'ts from the Bible. Uh, the moralistic gospel is often followed by the, the legalistic uh, legislation. The moralistic gospel about being good people, that's not good news because I can't do that. I tried that. My best friend had become a Christian and I'm I'm trying to catch up with him and think, what am I? I'm just religious. I try to open my Bible. I see what Jesus says. I see what my friend is like. I see the spirit blossoming in his life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. What do I got? I got dusty religion. I couldn't do it. I couldn't be a good person. And I remember kneeling at the side of my bed as an 18-year-old high school graduate and said, God, I can't be a Christian unless you make me a Christian. I need help. I need a savior. That's the gospel. Christ saves sinners. He doesn't come just to teach us how to save ourselves. This moralistic gospel is no gospel. And then there's the health and wealth gospel, which, which does talk about Jesus, but as a means to your best life now. And it distracts. There may be kernels of truth in some of these things, Bible verses in some of these teachers' works and words, but it's not the same Jesus. The simple, historic gospel by which we are saved. It's the church's greatest treasure, the gospel itself. And it's not advice. It's not a playbook. It's not a template. The Holy Spirit is not just your life coach. The gospel is power. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. To the Jew and the Gentile. 
It's a righteousness from outside ourself. There are other dangers here. These are just the first three. Deception, wandering, a different Jesus, a different gospel. There's also in verse 4, the lack of vigilance. The lack of vigilance. He says, if someone comes and proclaims, dot, 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 you're good with that. And this looks like a hypothetical, doesn't it? But the way this hypothetical is worded from the Greek and from the context, it implies someone has come and this has been happening. And I'm trying to tell you, it's not good. It's not just a hypothetical. Hey, what would we do if someone came into our church on a Sunday and over coffee, they started saying this. That was already happening at Corinth. The invaders had come. They were professing to be Christians. Perhaps they were professing to have come from Jerusalem. These are not these super apostles. These invaders are not the 12. And they're not the the three, Peter, James, and John. Uh, For one, because James was probably dead by now. He'd been killed. One of the early martyrs of the faith. It's not any of the true apostles. It may have been somebody who once physically saw Jesus. And then started up their own business. I mean, ministry. I say business because we'll learn in the very next verse, verse 7, that they were collecting money even though Paul was preaching free of charge. So we know these guys were in it for the dough as much as anything. But the lack of vigilance of the people was alarming. So Paul gently says, if someone comes and does this, Is that okay? That's happening. It's not okay, is the implied answer. We recall well what Jesus said to the Ephesian elders, or Paul said to the Ephesian elders as he departed them in the book of Acts. You can read about it in Acts 20. He says, there will come wolves among the flock. The thing is, the wolves don't just come in looking like wolves. They come in like sheep. They're in disguise. These invaders, these false teachers that were troublesome then and today profess to be believers and they come among us. We must be vigilant. And you know the the other word here that comes to mind for their lack lack of duty is that they were too tolerant. I thought that was an interesting expression. We live in a day where tolerance is one of the greatest virtues, except when it comes to Christians, they don't want to tolerate us. And they say we're intolerant because we believe in objective truth and the Bible and some other things. He's saying, you guys have let these folks in. You put up with it. You've got to draw the line. Be vigilant. And and related to this, the next danger is their distracted discernment. Their distracted discernment. So he goes on from verse 4 to talk uh, in verse 5. He says, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these. And Paul coins a phrase. He makes up a word to describe them. These hyper apostelos. Hooper, the, the word for hyper. These super Apostles. What is Paul talking about in verse 5? He's talking about, uh, I'm not inferior to them. You have been distracted. Your discernment, your esteem for them is too great. It should not be esteem. 
because they can talk better and they might smile, they might still have hair. You know, who knows why, what, what superficial or, or cultural reasons cause them to give credence to these invaders, these talkers. Something clicked. And Paul says, I'm not inferior to them. He's concerned that they're gullible to these supers and they're the bloated claims and boastful presence of these false teachers. They're pretty bad. Paul's got more to say about them shortly. But Paul's concerned here for their distracted discernment. They, they so quickly gave up on Paul and started to believe the lies about Paul. And he's been defending himself throughout the letter. Remember back earlier chapter, he says, we have the power of God in clay vessels. This tent is weary. He understood his infirmities and tried to anchor them on the gospel. Paul Barnett says here, Christians need to think. Christians need to think about what they are being taught rather than be impressed by who is teaching them, however winsome he may be. We can't accept or reject a teaching just because of the messenger, although there's more to be said here. I agree, we need to think about what is being taught and then take the content of what's being taught to the scriptures. It's easy to dismiss some ideas because of who say them. (laughs) Yeah, that guy. And we don't see if he was speaking the truth. Or when someone we know, love and esteem, somebody with uh, a lot of swagger in the Christian subculture, he says something that's got to be the only way to put it. Really. Verse 5, Paul says, I'm not inferior to those guys. And he goes on to tell them, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. What does Paul know? He knows Christ. He knows the truth. And he's been consistent with that truth. He says, indeed, in every way we've made this plain to you. He was with them for many months. And he was plain with the gospel. He was consistent with the gospel. So that sixth and my final danger that I see here today is forgetting the truth previously taught. They were not trusting what Paul had delivered them in the first place. Paul had been plain. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as I said, Paul was defending his ministry and he said this, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. An open statement of the truth. Quote the Bible, present the Bible, understand the Bible. Those words matter. Chapter 5, verse 11. Paul continues, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul had been plain. You know, bring that up again in chapter 12 when we get there in a couple weeks time. Chapter 12, verse 12. 
the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Paul says, when I was there, don't forget what happened. It was clear. It was plain. And you can dismiss me for my weaknesses, but I know the truth. And I've spoken the truth. My friends, I delight to remind you of these things today because our culture is awash in relativism. Truth is, is, is on the endangered species list in our world. It doesn't matter what's true. It matters how someone feels. I, I feel I'm this. I feel I'm that. I, I feel that's wrong. I feel that's right. Where is truth? Let me, in closing, just give you some words of application and exhortation. Uh, Number one, know your beloved well. Know your beloved well. James Denny said, our conception of the person of Christ determines our conception of the whole Christian religion. (laughs) And do we remember the important question before Jesus talked about building his church or turned his face towards Jerusalem, he turned to his disciples and say, he had asked them first, who do men say that I am? And then he said, looking them in the eye, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Do you know your beloved? Peter, with the help of God's Holy Spirit, had the right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. May we always remember who Christ is. The key, here's the nugget quote that I was thinking of earlier. The key to gospel fidelity is to know that Christ's sincere and pure devotion to us is far stronger than ours to him. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. He loves us more. So know your beloved well, dwell on that, that he should love you and commit to you. Secondly, be a pure bride. I know it's Mother's Day, but we switched to marriage today to talk about this. That's the metaphor. And that's the implication here. We need to be a pure bride. We need to be conscious that we will meet our groom. He will appear. We don't know the day of his appearing, but will we be ready We should test everything we're taught by the truth of Scripture. Be aware of the dangers and corruptions that can come from outside or inside the church. Don Carson said, Christians need to be wary of talk that mixes language of faith and religion with the content of self-interest and flattery. Ken Hughes said, Christianity shaped less by the cross than by triumphalism or rule or charismatic leaders or subjective experiences is dangerous. Christianity should be shaped by the cross. And finally, the closing exhortation is to trust the word of God. Paul was reminding them of what he had preached and what had borne fruit and what had been proven among them. May we ever remember the truth of God's word, how effective it is, how sure it is. We need to think about what we are being taught. 
We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. May the Lord help us be ready when our bridegroom comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this day for your word, these ancient words inspired by your Holy Spirit, translated into English for us to read, to have, to understand and obey. Help us, we pray. May we see ourselves and may we give ourselves to Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be mindful uh, of our hearts and give them wholly and singly to Jesus. Help us, we pray, and help us to help one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.